Welcome to Once and Future Authors, Changing Lives One Book at a Time. I'm Stephanie Larkin, an author, independent publisher, and book coach. And each week we will be discussing processes and strategies to get your book finished and published and meet authors and publishing experts to tap into their experiences and expertise. There is one book out there that can change your life, and that is the book you write. So welcome aboard. This podcast is produced by Red Penguin Books, an independent publishing company working with authors of all genres. Whether you have a manuscript all ready to go, a book still stuck in your head, or perhaps even hundreds of handwritten sheets of loose leaf shoved in a drawer, visit redpenguinbooks.com and unleash your inner author. Welcome to the show. Welcome to the Once and Future Author Podcast. I'm Stephanie, and I'm joined today by Haley St. James. Haley is a Boston-born, usually New York-based playwright and performer, and a graduate of Marymount Manhattan College's class of 2020. And congratulations, Haley. A non-binary lesbian on the autism spectrum, they are deeply passionate about seeing themselves and their communities represented truthfully in all media, theater first and foremost. In their theatrical work, they strive to marry authentic representation with hyper-theatrical, surreal, meta, and occasionally horny twists. They also have a thing for imaginary friends, ghosts, aliens, and well-handled pop culture references. Their plays include What a Piece of Work is Ham, which is a stoner comedy prequel to William Shakespeare's Hamlet, Too Hard a Knot, which was published in the Red Penguin Collection's I Can't Find My Flashlight, and it's a 20-minute bard-inspired dark comedy about the choices we make in this world. The play For Leonora or Companions, which is a tender, puppet-driven exploration of life on the autism and LGBTQ spectrum, and A God-Awful Small Affair, which is a sad, hopeful, and sexually frank quarantine play star guest starring the ghost of David Bowie. Welcome, Haley. Hi, Stephanie. Hi. Thank you. Thank you for joining me. Thank you. It's my pleasure to be here. Oh, I'm so thrilled to have you. And I, I, I had said before we started filming that I was going to read your bio because I love your bio. You know Thank that. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Not just because you managed to hit all of those, you know, highlights and things like that, but because of your mission statement and you actually get it out there first and foremost. And I think that's fabulous. Thank you. So tell me, with a uh, that's a huge, heady mission um, <laughs> uh, that being deeply passionate about seeing themselves and their communities represented truthfully in all media, theater first and foremost. How did you pick theater? Well, because um, for most of my life, I've been doing theater. I'd say since I was four, I wanted to do theater. Um, when I was four, my parents took me to see Peter Pan in Boston at the Wang Theater with Kathy Rigby as Peter Pan. And that kind of, you know, gave me the theater bug and it sort of, you know, grew from there. Um, I've been seeing theater regionally and like in Boston for most of my life. And then about 
10, 11 years ago, 12 years ago, really, um, I started going to New York to see theater every year. And, you know, every Christmas or so, we'd go to the city and see some shows. And it was always really fun. And then when it was time to, you know, figure out college stuff, I was like, I think I need to go into theater. But at this point, I was still very much focused on acting. I wanted to be a musical theater actor. I can't dance. So that was, you know, in hindsight, not a very good idea. So I applied, didn't get into anywhere, took a gap year, had a really great internship at an actor Shakespeare project in Boston, learned a lot, uh, reapplied to some colleges, only got into my safety, which was not ideal, but I went there for two years, had a really bad time for the most part. But then um, in the spring of 2015, I, uh, on a whim, had a ticket to the first preview of a musical called Something Rotten, which is a, a musical about these two brothers who are rivals with William Shakespeare and their playwrights. Favorite. And it's a show that just, it saved my life. This show made me, helped me get out of this really awful depression that also made me realize, hey, wait, they're playwrights, they write for the theater. I love writing. I love the theater. Maybe I should write for the theater. So in the following year, I took another year at the school, which was not ideal, but mostly just because I wanted to be close to New York because I went to school in New Jersey. And I went and saw shows every weekend. And then I was writing, nothing but writing. And then by the spring semester, when I finally took the playwriting class and wrote my first play, which was What a Piece of Work is Ham, uh, which was, you know, it was a student, like, you know, one act that I wrote for class. And by the end of that semester, I was like, yeah, no, I'm going to leave the school, reapply to other places, and I'm going to be a playwright. And so I took a second, I took my second gap year, applied to Marymount, because by that point, I was like, yeah, no, this is the only school that I think works for me. And I got in, and I'm just really grateful that I got to spend the past few years of my life in New York learning my craft in a place that I love, getting to be surrounded by what I love. Because as a writer, I learn so much visually and audio-wise. So seeing all this theater and being able to write about all this theater, because I also do some theater criticism on the side. It's been kind of, you know, on hiatus because considering the industry is dead right now. But I, just being able to be surrounded by what I love and write what I love and write about things that I love. That's huge. Just, that's my journey, really. What a gift. Well, first of all, I had no idea that you were inspired from Something's Rotten because that was one of my favorites. Oh, I'm so happy. The thing is, John Cariani, who played Nigel in the original cast, he is the most produced playwright in this country. He wrote Almost Maine. If you didn't know, he wrote Almost Maine. Yes, he wrote Almost Maine. I had no uh, idea you wrote Almost Maine. Almost Maine is a very, very special play for me. It's actually crazy. A year ago today, um, I made a really ridiculous road trip with a friend. We drove six hours from New York City to Portland to see, because Kiriani was in a production of Almost Maine at Portland Stage. And he was like doing his, like, his farewell performance of it because he's, you know, been doing it for so long. So I was like, I need to see this because I've only ever seen it with, you know, young people doing because it's the most produced play in, co- in high schools and colleges. So being able to see it production that's all adults. Mm-hmm. I will never see a better production of that play in my life. It was perfect. And that was a year ago today. So I'm just like, wow, I really miss Cariani right now. Cause he's, he became my mentor. He became, he's why I'm a playwright, really. The show itself was specifically his character and him as a person. Cause we started talking at the stage door and I shared him my scripts as I was writing them. And we just became best friends because of this show. And that show does mean the world to me. I saw it 37 times on Broadway. 37 times? <laughs> yeah four on tour 
Okay, I saw it three times and people thought that I was a little nuts. For this. There's nothing wrong with seeing things multiple times if it brings you joy. That's that's really how I feel. And the thing is, theater is cheaper than therapy. So I would just see it every weekend because okay. it was cheaper okay. than therapy. Haley, I want that written on a plaque. Theater is cheaper than therapy. It's true. I mean, unless, unless, it's, unless Hamilton is your show of choice, theater is cheaper than therapy. <laughs> I, I think that we should like push the mayor to open the theaters and that should be our Well, plan. first we need the entire we need the entire like industry to be vaccinated and um we need a bailout like fast. Like the the save our stages bill that passed, thank God, only covers for-profit theaters and not non-profits. So basically, sure, maybe the Broadway houses are okay, but what about all the off-Broadway theaters? It's just really stressful. Like these actors aren't getting really anything. We're not getting enough unemployment. It's just, no, no. it's it's really messy. I know yesterday, I don't really know much about what's going on with the mayor's race in New York, but Andrew Yang tweeted like that one of his priorities is bringing Broadway back. And I was like, okay, I'm listening, Yang Gang. So, <laughs> we'll see what happens. That'll get a whole lot of people on the Andrew Yang uh, bandwagon. That's yep. Well, somehow they're opening them up in, in London. Well, they did briefly, and then it got bad again, so they just shut them all down. I remember they did a, there was a thing on one of the local, like, not local, but like one of like the national news things. They had a segment about, like, six reopening, and I got to see that in Boston, and I love that show a lot. It didn't even get to open on Broadway. The shutdown happened the, their opening night, which is so sad because they're so good. But it got to reopen in London, and they had all these, like, footage of, like, people going to go see it, and they had clips from the show, and I just fell to the floor crying because I miss being able to be in theater and then you know like two days after that it closed down again so oh. it's it's real bad and i know this the, i know uk is on lockdown until you know yeah. may or june at this point which is um at least they're on you know countrywide lockdown unlike us we're just kind of all over the place yeah i mean hopefully hopefully by hopefully by, by wednesday wednesday hopefully things will start to get back to normal and we hopefully that the, the sun will come out and uh you know the, the vaccines are rolling out my parents are getting vaccinated next week i'm very excited you know we got to get things back on track yes the night that they closed broadway um i was holding tickets to see harry potter part one. Oh man i got no. uh, that's a show i mean hopefully i mean hopefully it'll come back because i do like i'm not as much of a harry potter fan as i used to be when i was younger considering everything jk rowling has said I mean, as a trans person, no, no, I but totally I still, I still enjoy that production because of the magic and like how they, pr the production itself, I love. So I hopefully when things come back, you'll be able to see it because it is a wonderful production. I spent a fortune on those tickets. Mm -hmm. Yeah, my, I know the day the shutdown, I was on my way because I had a feeling things were going to shut down. I was on my way to get my refund for Carolina Change. But the, the show I know I last had tickets for was for Company, which was going to be my graduation present, oh. which I was very looking forward to because lots of my favorite people were in it. And yes. I mean, it's on time. You can't go wrong for on time as a graduation no, definitely present. Definitely not. Definitely not. But yes, that, that, that's what, I, and so many of my friends were posting. So where were you supposed to be last night? And we all had, you know, tickets yep. to something and, and there it went. And there it went. But hopefully. Hopefully. Hopefully, uh, I keep hearing that you know this next decade is going to be like the Roaring Twenties. That we're I mean, healthy and out there, and the theater is going to be both. Let's hope. Let's hope that the end of our Roaring Twenties isn't the same as the last Roaring Twenties. <laughs> <20s. laughs> 
exactly. he's almost a history minor, so. Oh gosh, okay, so I guess I better stash some of that, that cash under the bed and lose <laughs> 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 yes, let's let's look at what could be. Let's not go there. <laughs> now, I love that you are a playwright, and I am so often, especially on this show, talking to authors, book mm -hmm. authors, prose. And I would love for you to speak a little bit about the difference in writing between the two, because sometimes people will come to me, and they also will say it about a screenplay. I'm thinking about this and it's kind of like a screenplay, but mm -hmm. maybe I should write it like a book or is it a play or I don't really know. Can you speak a little bit about the differences? Yeah, well, for me, cause I've taken, I took tea rewriting briefly while I was at Marymount, but I mean, as a playwright, I mostly just write for the stage. Um, prose is where you basically have to describe literally everything and there is no room for like, imagination on the uh reader's front except for like you know them envisioning what you have written on the page the lovely thing about writing for the stage is that you just give them some stage directions you know some basic character descriptions at the very beginning of the text it's all just there for the actors and the create and the creatives who end up producing the production end up creating there's a lot more room to play i treat scripts as basically blueprints that are for playgrounds so if someone decides to do a production of one of my plays to the director and the creative teams you know that's their world that they can play with and create and you know I'll just be there being like oh do I like this or do I not like this because the nice thing about playwrights is they have more control over their writing than other types of writers because screenwriters have to sell their scripts to people and the people who buy the scripts can do whatever they want with them which is not ideal because as someone who cares so much about you know the representation in my work and you know you know my mission as I say about you know representing my communities truthfully as a playwright, I have full control of that. If I was a screenwriter and I, you know, adapted one of my plays into a movie or something and someone bought it, they could, you know, change all the characters and not make them, you know, neurodivergent or make them all straight. And I would absolutely hate that. So that all the time. And that happens in television as well. Yes, yes. That's screenwriting, TV writing. Your, your rights to something. I mean, who knows what's going to happen? Mm -hmm. For better or for worse. Sometimes mm -hmm. making good choices. There's a, a Netflix series on right now called Bridgerton. Yeah, I, I want to watch it, but like at the same time, I don't want to watch it because like I'm I'm here for like fun period pieces that are super diverse. But like one, I haven't read the books, and just I don't know. I really don't have the mental capacity to watch a lot of TV right now. What I have been watching it. Mm -hmm. and from what I understand, now I did not read the books, and I should not admit that as a publisher that I did not read the books. <laughs> <laughs> it's okay. From what I have heard, um, while the Netflix production is ethnically diverse, mm -hmm. the books are not. That actually wasn't, and that's nothing insulting about the books. Yeah, no, I think TV doing that is a. That simply wasn't something that was put into the books. The books were historical mm -hmm. fiction. And uh, Chandra Rhimes, who is the producer, yep. took the books and said, you know, we can turn it into this. Now, um, Queen Charlotte, who is the protagonist in this, um, mm -hmm. was most likely at least half African. Well, it's not African-American if you're an Yeah, but <laughs> OK, that's cool. Yeah, I mean, so it is true, but the author didn't put it in the television show did. And in this case, I think it was an improvement, but like yeah. you're saying, you never know where they're gonna go. They could have taken out the diversity. 
Yeah, and that would honestly be hell. I mean, because that's the thing I do like about... I did read an article yesterday from Glad, I think, that said there's exactly four writers, like showrunners, who have who've written the most LGBTQ representation in the media right now. It's the same four. It's Shonda Rhimes, Greg Berlanti, Lena Waithe, and Ryan Murphy. And they're basically, they basically, these four people have a monopoly over all the queer content on television right now. And I can't decide if that's really good or really sad because it's the same four writers. I mean, one of them is freaking Ryan Murphy, who I'm very hit or miss with because I think the only show of his that I truly love is the show that he actually has the least creative control over. And that's Pose because Pose is mostly Stephen Canals. And, you know, that's a show that's pretty much entirely just a cast of trans queer actors and they're all incredible and that show is brilliant but other than that Ryan Murphy is just like let's cast the same white gay men in everything and it's just very tiring and like at least with Shonda from what I can tell because I don't really watch any of her shows at least she does try to like consistently cast queer people of color and you know I don't know it's just I don't watch a lot of tv as much as I used to anyway because I mean I've been so busy writing I don't watch much tv either but uh I'm always a sucker for a good British accent. I do. British television usually tends to be my like go-to, but even then, the past couple seasons of Doctor Who have not been good because the new showrunner does not know how to write sci-fi. And it's a shame because, you know, we finally have our first female Doctor Who and her character so far is just, she's the girl doctor. And it's just really annoying that, you know, you finally have this great leap forward in representation on like the BBC's like flagship series. And she has no personality other than she's a girl. And it's two seasons of just really bad scripts. Like the historical episodes are good, but like the sci-fi ones that are actually like the plot of the seer of the seasons are so bad. And it's so, it's so unfortunate because like, it's a show that is very, very special to me and like has had good representation. Like the season before she started, we had like the doctor's main companion was a lesbian of color and she was awesome. And she didn't even get to stay on to the next season. So we could have a nice transition period with, you know, first female doctor having, you know, a lesbian of color as her companion. That would have been so cool, but no, they're just like, Hey, let's give them, you know, an old white guy, uh, um, a black, a black guy and a, um, a Pakistani girl and none of them have personalities. So you have four people on the TARDIS and none of them have personalities. It's that's, just that's so it? bad. It's like, yeah, it's diverse, but nobody has personalities because the showrunner doesn't know how to write for these characters. It's just, it's a mess because the show that meant everything to me. So now <sighs> I have to ask you, 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 the way you described writing for the stage versus writing for the page. Also. Yes. Um, that when, when writing for the stage, you are writing, oh, your term was so it, I, I, I literally just come up with that right now, but I, it's a blueprint for a playground. Love, love, love that. I, I um, love that. I, I do love that. I cannot that, believe I said that. That should be on a t-shirt. <laughs> <laughs> I guess. Right there. And then on the back is theater is cheaper than therapy. <laughs> <laughs> we can do a whole fashion line, you and I. Oh boy. <laughs> oh boy. Go to Redbubble. Let's go. <laughs> <laughs> now. Let me ask you a question from a reader's standpoint. Mm -hmm. Now, are you saying then that a reader of prose um, mm -hmm. has less of their own need or use or imagination than a reader of plays? Like the play reader gets to do more? I mean, I'd say, I mean, because imagination can be different for so many different types of people because everybody perceives their imaginations differently. 
I mean, as someone who enjoys reading, you know, books, I mean, a lot of my favorite, my two favorite authors of all time are Neil Gaiman and Catherine Valenti, who are, you know, you know, sort of, you know, sci-fi fantasy, um, just, you know, all sorts of, um, they're genre writers. They're my two favorite genre writers. And the way that they write is so imaginative already, but like, even then when you read it, you can still put your own, like, you know, mental idea of like, oh, this is what this character looks like, or this is what this location looks like. And I feel like as a playwright, like, it's kind of the same thing. It really just depends on who's reading. I mean, I think everybody is capable of having incredible imaginations. It's just, you know, some writers I think can tap into that sense of imagination better. That's really what I think. It's about the writers themselves, I think more than the readers because I've read some stuff that's pretty like not great. I don't really know it just, but then I can imagine stuff and suddenly it's a whole lot better. I so, think you know? some readers are better at imagination than others as well. Yeah. Some readers have a whole thing in their mind going and others are like, I don't get it. Yeah, and I feel like a lot of these readers who do have high, like very high functioning imaginations are also really good writers, mm. or at least very creative in some way, or at least they're very right-brained, so. Now, uh, we were talking about how theater is, I mean, I hate to say gone for the moment, or at least not yeah. in the way we like it. Yeah, it's only intermission. <laughs> I think we're putting that on the sleeve of the sweatshirt. The thing is, though, that's what the Broadway League said. That's what the Broadway League said, said last March, and we're still, this is the world's longest intermission. I know, and that's why they're selling so much booze at the bar, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, well, hopefully when intermission is over. <laughs> I my, my thought about the theaters when this intermission is over is that they're going to have to have only half a house because of spacing. Yep. But they'll charge twice as much. And That's what I'm scared about. But the thing is, I know. the Ratatouille TikTok musical made $2 million for the Actors Fund simply on a pay-what-you-can ticket pricing scheme. And I think that between that and also the fact that they filmed it or, you know, made it for streaming specifically, I'm hoping when theaters do come back, more, like, the unions are a little more lenient and can make shows be able to be streamed so people can pay, like, you know, however much an actual theater ticket would be. And they could be able to watch it from the comfort of their own home. And it would be, you know, right. a chance. Because, you know, we know how well the Hamilton Pro Shot worked. We know how well, because um, people would just buy the Disney Plus subscription just so they could watch Hamilton. Oh, people are willing to drop money to watch film theater. National Theater Live has been doing this for years at movie theaters. And then, you know, they started doing it on YouTube for like weekends over the summer, which has been great. And now they have their own streaming service. So you can just pay, you know, however much a month to watch all the National Theater stuff that they have to offer, which is a really good service. Right, and the Metropolitan Opera was doing that all Met, The Met, at least, the thing is the Met has been for at least past 40 or something 40 50 years have been filming all of their operas for streaming because they have less unions to go through than broadway mm. they mostly just have to deal with the the musicians and um it's, yeah it's all to do with the is unions which is singers stagehands yeah i mean even then i mean some of the iopsy stuff sure i mean some of the all the different but it's mostly specifically about musicians compared to broadway which needs you know every single union I, my last semester at Marymount, I took a class on the business of Broadway, and I did not realize just how many unions had to go into every single, every, everything. Theater is most, Broadway is pretty much just a very fancy game of real estate. It's not really so much about finding what shows are actually the most creative or like best. It's all about what's going to make the most money and what is going to like make it worth the fact that we just got access to this building. It's, it's very, very annoying. Because as this is as someone who does want to see my work produced, 
I'm not as keen on being produced on Broadway unless like, you know, a really cool producer actually wanted to take a chance on my stuff. But I see myself more as an off-Broadway writer. I actually, this past season that we basically had, I saw pretty much everything off-Broadway and I saw like two or three things on Broadway because most of the things that were on Broadway this season, I had already seen in Boston. Right, right. Because this season literally had three shows that I saw in the span of two years in Boston, free Broadway. So and at least there is something to be said about the creative flexibility that one has off Broadway yep. um, that they, they really have to water things down. In fact, uh, now you and I bumped into each other outside of Moby Dick. Yes, Moby Dick, when it was just the concert version, that was not the full production. Which was fabulous. <sighs> Could talk about that production for hours. Okay, <laughs> just for any of our viewers who are watching this, if you are ever going to see Moby Dick, the only place to see it is in the room in the Museum of Natural History. Under the whale. Under the whale. There is no other place that one should be seeing Moby Dick except under the whale. <laughs> I mean, yeah, God. I, I think about the, that night and the day I saw the show in Boston, yes. the full show, because it's just, I mean, that is how you, that is how you do an adaptation. <laughs> oh, no, it was, it was fabulous. But my, my thought in both of those, because I saw it in Boston also, mm -hmm. was, well, Enjoy it now because it's not going to look like this on Broadway. They I mean, what they have to change to make it sell as many tickets as they need to sell. Mm -hmm. I know? think it would it would sell simply by creative team alone because Dave and Rachel oh, are now very established. Rachel has her Tony. Dave is very beloved, even though he doesn't have any, which is a crime. Um, but I think if it did go to Broadway, it would go to the circle in the square because that's the closest thing to it's a theater in the round. Theater it's, in the round right. I think Moby Dick would work really well there. Do you think they're going to borrow the whale from the Museum of Natural History? I don't know. I mean, the thing is, because the set design that Mimilian created that basically made it feel like you were simultaneously on a boat, but also inside a whale was very, 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 very effective. Yes. So I, I think it would be fine. I, I don't know. I just really hope that it gets a life in New York because I if, hope so too. It's, it was just so, so special. Like the, one of the last two pieces of theater criticism I wrote before the shutdown was a massive, massive, like in-depth review of the show as like someone who had not read the actual like Melville novel until my bus ride home from mm -hmm. after seeing the musical. And I was like reading like, wow, this actually makes so much sense. This is what I love about Dave Malloy as a, as a writer, like as a theater writer, he's one of my favorite writers because he adapts you know, these, you know, giant ass classic novels that people are like, oh, I don't want to read them. They're too long. But then he adapts them in such a way that makes you want to read the novels and actually helps you understand the novels better because he gives so much life to these characters. So like, I would probably have never read War and Peace by Leo Tolstoy unless I saw Grey Comet. Like, I would not have read Mel her novels Moby Dick unless I saw Dave Malloy's Moby Dick. I just, I love Dave so much he is one of my favorite people on the whole planet now even during this um intermission that theater is having you recently had a play reading going on oh yes yes i did i actually had two last year um I didn't know about two Tell yeah this is the yeah um but the one in october um which is for a god-awful small affair uh, that that was really, really, really special. Um, that was my second reading. My first reading was actually for Four Leonore or Companions, which was done through Pride Plays, which was um, co-sponsored by Playbill. Mm -hmm. So that was a pretty big deal. Um, Michael Yuri was one of our, you know, creative people, like Michael Yuri from Ugly Betty, who is a dear, dear friend. 
Uh, he was like my mentor on that and he produced it. And that was really fun. That one we got to use like equity actors and like I would like a real legit director. And like, I mean, everybody I work with is legit. It's just like, this was my first gig out of college because I graduated in February. And then, you know, March shutdown happens. I'm like, well, what am I going to do now? There's no theater to do. I don't, I don't think I submitted to anything. I don't know. And then, you know, April, I get a phone call from Michael and he was like, Hey, so I read your play and we want to do it for pride plays. I'm like, Oh, okay. I forgot I submitted. I'm down. So I got to have my first gig right out the gate, which was really special. But then, you know, during while I was doing that, I was also writing this, this quarantine play that was like sort of, you know, channeling a lot of feelings and thoughts so and then I got to have this reading in October which sort of just came out of nowhere I was just like tweeting hey would anybody like want to read this play that I wrote about quarantine and some nice people reached out and they were like wait this would be a good fit for our company we should do a reading and I'm like okay and so we did and it was awesome and that one at least is available for streaming that's right so I will be sharing that link along with this uh episode so let's get those views going yeah no um it's a really it's it's just it's a very like it's hard it's kind of a hard play to explain because like how do I explain this play it's 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 a quarantine play so I wrote it like pretty much in real time from March till May so it starts in like March right around the time of the shutdown and ends like right before all the Black Lives Matter protests started um so it's mostly specifically about like the first few months of quarantine but it's um it's about um there's two rooms in an apartment building in New York um, one room is um, is two lesbians named uh, Jody and Nessa. Um, Jody has has visited has come in to visit from out of state, and because of the shutdown, like she can't go home, so she's basically forced to uh, be in a U-Haul situation, which is what us lesbians like to call. You know, when you just you know casually move in after you know only a few months of dating. Um, have not actually been in one of those relationships yet, but it's okay. Um, but so she's in this you know accidental U-Haul situation with Nessa. And then meanwhile, next door, um, there is a non-binary stoner named Luca, who is very, very lonely, um, who's in a long distance relationship that is in a very rocky place right now because of the pandemic. And um, they're constantly being visited by the uh, ghost of David Bowie, who is their favorite, their muse, their, you know, reason for being, they're just everything, their, their hero, their life their inspiration and everything. So it's kind of how these two rooms start off sort of just being character studies, but slowly there's sort of a connection. I don't want to spoil it, but of course not, no. um, it's it's very, it's, it's probably the most just intimate and frank piece of writing I've ever written. I was, I, I was just, I, I pushed a lot of boundaries with myself as a writer writing it because as you're someone who had been dealing with so much, you know, I'm super touch starved, super lonely, just very, very alone during the first months of quarantine because I was living alone in New York City in my apartment with the, you know, people who, you know, we didn't really bother each other. I lived with three other people and we just didn't really bother each other. I just stayed in my room and wrote and very lonely and very touch starved. And I was just like, I need to channel this, all this yearning into this writing. So I wrote this play and I mean, it started out really actually as um, an excuse to write a star vehicle for Lucas Steele, who is in Great Comet, who played Anatole. He's the reason I'm non-binary. I saw him in Great Comet and I was like, oh, I I want to be, I want that. I want to be you. And it sort of made me realize things about myself. And I'm really grateful that 
he's just always sort of been an inspiration for me. Um, he was in the last show. He was the last person I hugged like before the shutdown because he was in a show off Broadway called Emoji Land, which was incredibly prophetic because this is a show that is, you know, on the outside, a very fun musical comedy about, you know, emojis inside a phone. But then it's a show that's also about xenophobia and a pandemic. And Lucas Steele's character like causes a virus that, you know, threatens to wipe out the entire emoji community. And so, you know, and like as the show went on and the show obviously had to close a week early because of the pandemic, like every time I saw the show, it got more and more real to the point where by the end of it, the last thing, one of the last things Lucas Steele said to me before the show, like before, you know, we had to part our ways was Emoji Land was a documentary. I'm like, damn right, it was a documentary. But I've always wanted him to play David Bowie. So I was like, I want to write a star vehicle for him. But then it sort of morphed into this, you know, study of longing and yearning and finding connection in quarantine. And also it's a, it's a piece about being in an open relationship and polyamory because as someone who, you know, is in, has been in an open relationship for five years and, you know, cares a lot about, you know, healthy representation of people in open relationships because it's not cheating. It's just, you know, sometimes people have a lot of love to give and like to have multiple partners and there's nothing wrong with that. And I'm just trying to normalize these things. I'm trying to normalize lesbian relationships on stage that aren't just, you know, very like, you know, chaste. Like this is a play that's like a lot about sexuality and relationships and like how like quarantine brings us closer together in ways we don't expect. And I'm just, it was a lot to write and I'm just really grateful that I got to have a reading of it at all because it's a piece, I mean, I would love to see it staged someday, but like right now, considering everything going on and considering how intimate my piece is, like how will this get staged? Like it may have to wait a few years to get like a full, full production, like with an intimacy director and everything. But like for now, like as a Zoom reading, it worked pretty damn well, I think. Fantastic. Fantastic. So what's next on your writing agenda? Right now I'm actually writing um, a companion piece with the same characters um, that's about election week. Um, I'm trying to have that finished by inauguration day because I want it to remain timely. Um, I decided to throw these characters into the, uh, you know, okay, they've been in this like this blissful little bubble, you know, for the past few months, some dynamics have shifted. Um, one of the characters' parents has COVID now and it's a lot about, you know, it's a lot about like the generation gap between millennials and boomers because all my characters like myself are millennials and obviously all their parents are boomers. So it's, you know, interesting to like explore those characters through this lens rather than, you know, specifically the relationship quarantine lens. Right. Um, I'm, writing, I'm working on that. Um, I have a lot of ideas planned. Um, my other piece that's in um, reality in A Guide to Growing Up that's an excerpt from a play that's currently a bit on the back burner right now, um, but that's a one person play about a young lesbian who is finding that all of her major like milestones in her life seem to coincide with Coldplay songs. Coldplay are my favorite band of all time. I wanna keep writing this play, but I wanna make sure that you know the band gives me the okay to keep writing it because you know it's music licensing. I tend to write a lot with music because I love music and my favorite artists tend to give me a lot of inspiration. So I want to at least get their approval or blessing of some kind before I continue writing it, or at least finish it, because it's, it's almost there. Um, what else am I working on? I mean, I have a lot of things planned. I mean, I'm doing a challenge in February to have to write a play a day for 28 days. So hopefully I'll have lots of new material. Play a day, probably, you know, 10-minute plays a day, you know. <laughs> I mean, it's fine. I, I need more 10-minute plays. 
if you go to my new new play exchange account if you go to my uh, my page i mo i have my two full lengths um and a couple you know short things but like not like a lot of 10 minutes and people love to do 10 minute plays because you can do them on zoom a lot of the time they're good for festivals there's always opportunities for 10 minute plays and i just don't have many and i really need to you know so now you'll have to avert that yeah wow a play a day um, yeah where is this where can we find you and read Me? um i'm on twitter at at Haley St. James, H-A-Y-L-E-Y-S-T-J-A-M-E-S. -E -E um, if, if you look me up on New Play Exchange, that is, um, I'm Haley St. James on New Play Exchange. Um, that was really it. I mean, I'm, I, I need to start a website soon. That's my big thing. I need to figure out how to do that. <laughs> but yeah, that, that's me. You're smart, you'll figure it out. <laughs> I'll figure it out. <laughs> So how do you get inspired with these ideas? You've mentioned music, you've mentioned other actors mm -hmm. there. If you're sitting there, I have no ideas where I go next. What do you do? For me, I mean, I just tend to absorb a lot of content, a lot of media that I love. Sometimes I get inspired by other writers. Sometimes I get inspired by like things that I'm super into. Like a lot of, a big trope in all my work is at least one of the characters tends to have a pretty big hyperfixation on something, but I also have a pretty big hyperfixation. But that's also a result of me loving to dramaturge my own work. And so when I want to make sure that my character does truly love something, I also truly love it too. So I go on this massive deep dive. So writing, writing God Awful Small Affair, I was always like fond of David Bowie. Like he wasn't my favorite person ever. I, I was sad when he passed. I like had listened to his stuff when I was younger, but not like all the time. But you know, in the past couple of years, I was like slowly like you know figuring stuff with gender and everything and then last year when I was you know really seeing seeing Lucas all the time in this show and I was like I want to write this, this thing I was like I should like really get into David Bowie so I did and it sort of became this massive deep dive to the point where like I honestly can't imagine a time in my life where I didn't love David Bowie like he just fits this sort of perfect niche of you are just the inspiration to me as an artist who just wasn't afraid to, you know, take risks and break these boundaries and do all this really cool, weird, artsy stuff in the name of weird, crazy art. The way he just sort of just transcended gender, which is something that all I want to do in life is just transcend gender and just be myself without fear. Um, just, he was just such an inspiration. And this year, I mean, last week was the anniversary of his passing and that was like the first time like that I was like super like invested in everything that was going on and they um they released um the pro shot of the musical that he wrote before he passed um Lazarus which was um a sequel to The Man Who Fell to Earth which is one of my favorite movies which is you know David Bowie he's an alien it's great that we kill for his hair in that movie but um Lazarus was so so brilliant I'm just so grateful that they waited they waited five years until after you know five years since his passing to release it because they thought that would be appropriate and I think it was the perfect time because what a way it was like a five year wait to hear him finally properly say goodbye. And, but like, I mean, a thing in my play is that David Bowie isn't actually dead and he's actually an alien and he's just back on his home planet. He's going to come back when we need him the most. And I fully believe this like a hundred percent, like he's still out there and he's going to look out for us. Like actually like the night before Trump's Twitter got taken down, 
um it was his birth it was the day before his birthday and so I was like I'm praying to David Bowie I'm like you gotta just give us something give us a sign that you're still out there it's been five years and we miss you and then the next day Trump's Twitter gets deleted I'm like thanks thanks Bowie it's all you it's all David Bowie I was wondering who did that now I know it was David Bowie it was it was it was David Bowie. There's also a thing in my play where uh, David Bowie steals toilet paper from the White House, and I'm like, yeah, no, he did that. <laughs> so yeah, I know. Well, yeah, I, I can't wait to read the um, the election week one. Yeah, I mean, I don't. I hope I get to finish it this weekend. That's my plan. I'm gonna have to write a lot because it's a lot different in terms of structure than the first play because this play is mostly monologues and very short scenes. First play is mostly lots and lots of scenes with a couple monologues. So it's, um, it's, it's, it's a lot. I mean, getting back to like my, my fix, my, like, you know, hyper fixations and my special interests, uh, my play um, for Leonora or Companions is probably the closest thing to an autobiographical piece I've written, but it's not quite autobiographical, but Nora is very, very special to me because I mean, I was dead set on writing this play because I love Curious Instant, The Dog in the Nighttime, but it's not perfect autism rep. Like it's very much like traditional, this is a cishet male boy who is autistic and this is how he is. And it's just, I, I love the piece as a production, but like, I'm just like, hmm, I, I do wish like, you know, an actual autistic voice wrote this piece and, you know, actually put more, you know, effort into making this character feel more real because as much as I love the piece, it's very tropey. It's very like, yes, this is how, you know, cishet white autistic boy acts. So I wrote for Leonora Companions as a sort of response to that by writing a piece about an autistic queer woman and her experiences, but also like filtering it through my lens of I love puppetry. I want to write pieces that involve puppetry. So here she has this cool imaginary friend who's a talking hyena and it's based on a painting. Like I, this whole, the whole idea for this place started because I went to the Met on a like day, like day, like class trip with my playwriting class, my first semester at Marymount. And I saw this painting by Leonora Carrington, who's one of my favorite artists. She's a surrealist. Um, and it's this painting of a woman in a chair next to a hyena in this room. And I was like, wow, I love this. What is her story? So I wrote this, I wrote as a 10 minute, I wrote this 10 minute scene about her talking to this hyena. And it was almost like she's a psychiatrist. And I was like, wait, I want to explore this more. So I, explained it into a one act and I was like wait but it's not even finished and it's only a one act no this is gonna be a full length so I just kept writing and I, I gave this I gave Nora the um like because when I was younger because obviously like Harry Potter was a big part of my life but I've had to since you know disown it but my other big favorite childhood book series was the Oz books and I still love them um, and they're still super important to me and I was like, I don't really know anybody who really talks about them. And like, it always has felt like a very specific hyperfixation for myself. So I was going to be like, hey, Nora's into the Oz books too. She collects them too. And I was just really grateful to put a bit of myself into this character even more so. And just like, hey, we are the same in terms of our mental health. Like, no, we're also very similar personality wise. And I just wanted to write this nice love story between two women who are queer and autistic and it's not a sob story and it's like actually happy and good and wholesome. And cause I'm just tired of seeing stories where, you know, it's, you know, lesbians, but it's tragic because one of them has to die or, you know, they have to break up for, you know, society reasons, or, you know, I'm just really sick of seeing stories about trans characters who have to suffer, or it's always about coming out. It's never about just, they're just there and they're trans and we deal with it and it's great. When I say that I care about representation of my communities in what I write and in all media, it's because I want to be someone who is writing these stories 
for people who aren't just like me, but for everybody to read and understand just how we work. And it's not like we have to be, you know, people to sob over. It's not like we are a problem that needs to be cured. We're just people living our lives. And that's really what matters to me. And so I write about this in my work. Like, I just care so much about good representation. And it, it, it kills me that, like, there's so many things on TV or whatnot that, like, just are so close. But then it's like, oh, you've partnered with Autism Speaks. Well, they don't speak for me. So... I'm not going to watch you. Like there's been all this, this stuff about Sia who like normally I loved her music, but she decided to make a movie about an autistic character. Um, and I've seen that I, I cannot, it's hard to watch the trailer because it's just so upsetting, but she cast Maddie Ziegler, who's like her normal dancer and like all her videos. She is not autistic as this, I don't like using functioning labels, but the character is very low functioning. And she cast, you know, you know, and she's like, Oh, we tried casting autistic actors, but they weren't very good. And I'm like, so she cast Maddie, which is nepotism because she's in everything Sia does. And Maddie clearly wasn't happy doing this, but you know, Sia keeps saying, no, she has to be in all my stuff. And then all the, so many people in the autism community, myself included, have been tweeting at Sia telling her that what she's doing is incredibly ableist. And then Sia goes out and says to all the people who are like harassing us that I love you, keep going. Which, you know, if you know what's been going on the past week, lots of echoes there. And I'm just like, Sia, please stop. Like I'm boycotting this movie and it's just, this is the opposite of the kind of representation we deserve. And it's, it sucks because there's so many people I love in this movie. Like Leslie Odom Jr. is in this movie and like, he's great. And it's just like, no, no, you, you cannot be doing this. So I'm just fighting to have my work seen and just, you know, enjoyed by people because I want good representation. It's really simple. There is no, there is no us without us. You can't write stories about us without us. Our voices matter just as much as neurotypical people. Our voices matter just as much as heterosexual people. Our voices just matter as, as cisgender people. We're just, we just want to be heard. I know I get very passionate about this. It's just, it's just all it. I want in this industry, the writing industry, the media industry in general, performing arts. It's just... It just matters a lot to me. It does. And it matters a lot for all of us. Just not everybody knows it yet. Unfortunately. <laughs> but I love the passion. You know that I love the passion. That's why <laughs> I, I've said to you, I love that I can see the passion <laughs> right there in your bio. And good for you for putting it out there on the very first line. We should all put our passion out there on the very first line. You're awesome. I agree. Thank That's you, Stephanie. Awesome. Please do me a favor and keep me up on things. Um, for anybody who is uh, watching or listening, I have shared um, the link to A God Awful Small Affair by Haley St. James so that you can watch the play now that you have met the person and, uh, <laughs> and watch the play and know down the road, um, I remember when and, <laughs> and follow this rising star. Thank you so much for joining me on Once in Future Author Podcast. Thanks so much for joining us for Once in Future Authors. If you've enjoyed the show, please subscribe to the podcast and leave a review. Reviews help other interested listeners to find the show. So your review could launch new books every day. 
Thanks again for joining us and happy writing.